today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Ontario Power Generation is developing the project next to the Darlington Nuclear Generating Station. OPG's president and CEO Ken Hartwick says that he hopes it won't be the only one. And I think as we uh, we move forward on the first uh, reactor, the first SMR, uh, we'll design the site to probably build four at the site, uh, but we'll only start the second one when we know we're, we are successful on the first one. To explore this idea further, we are tapping on Dr. Chris Kiefer, who's joining us from Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it because, you know, until yesterday when this was announced, I actually hadn't heard of a grid-scale small modular reactor. I know you have. Uh, so maybe you can tell us exactly what that is. For sure. I mean, there's no great mystery here. This is just the smaller version of a very well-established reactor technology. It is new for Canada. I want to be clear about that because we have used our own national design called the Candu reactor. I don't want to get too into the weeds here, but that is a heavy water reactor, a really remarkable piece of technology, which has contributed to Ontario's deeply decarbonized grid powered our coal phase out and produces medical isotopes that sterilize 40% of the world's single-use medical devices. But this technology, it's not new or untested. This is a boiling water reactor. They're used all over the world. It's just a smaller version. Um, And so, you know, this is a historic announcement because we now have a very pro-nuclear provincial government and a federal government that's been very conflicted on its approach to nuclear, finally coming around, seeing the light on this vital decarbonization technology and, you know, putting its money where its mouth is. Um, Well, uh, Germany has had to switch its plans. I mean, it was getting out of nuclear generation, um, but because of the conflict in uh, in Ukraine with Russia and uh, problems with uh, natural gas pipelines, um, Germany has had to rethink all of its plans on nuclear generation. I really call Germany the canary in the coal mine, and I use the word coal mine deliberately. Even before the Russian invasion, Germany was depending on coal for the majority of its electricity supply. That's in 2021. Okay, I want to be crystal clear about this. And that's despite a 550 billion euro investment in a wind and solar dominated energy transition. The simple fact is that the Germans were not able to phase coal off their grid. Ontario did. We use nuclear energy. In Germany, they've done the opposite. They're, they've shut down an enormous nuclear fleet. It used to provide 30% of their energy. And yes, because Russia has cut them off now, um, they're actually turning back towards coal. Just this last week, we heard an announcement that they're firing up five new lignite coal plants. And I mean, all coal is terrible for the environment and terrible for air quality, but lignite is the worst kind of coal you can imagine. Um, So Germany is not the uh, example to follow here. And I'm very glad that our government um, has, has changed course. I'll remind listeners that our natural resource minister, Minister Wilkinson, actually defended the Germans' decision to shut down the remaining nuclear plants, um, saying that these nuclear plants don't actually displace gas. I mean, that was an outright falsehood. Um, But he was contradicted several weeks later by Greta Thunberg, the world's most famous climate activist, who said, yes, Germany is moving away from nuclear into coal, and that is something that should be opposed. So, you know, the world is really turned upside down, Um, you know, Even before this Russian invasion, we were heading into an energy crisis. And when you have an energy crisis, when you have a shortage of fossil fuels, if you actually need to replace fossil fuels, the tool that works better than any other is nuclear energy. And so it's it's an exciting time, you know, as an activist who's sort of chosen this as as their field um, to be at the forefront of this. 
Um, I understand that these small uh, reactors can be built fairly quickly. Again, the history of nuclear energy is that we started with small reactors. The first CANDU design at Douglas Point um, had a similar power output as this plant that's being designed at Darlington. So what's old is new again. There's nothing fancy about this. Again, Russia has built several small modular reactors. China has built similarly sized small reactors. Um, this is the first small reactor built in the West. You know, I do have some mixed feelings about this because we have an incredible Canadian content in our CANDU nuclear reactor technology. Um, this is a reactor that is operating better than ever, that has been updated over decades and decades, um, and is setting operational records. It works great. Um, in my opinion, we need to not let CANDU go the way of the Avro Arrow. We should be very proud of this technology. As I mentioned, proven track record on deep decarbonization and this amazing spinoff of medical isotopes. Um, but we have elected to pursue, you know, maybe building small as a way that we can build more quickly because it's a smaller plant, right? I'm very heartened by the fact that Todd Smith uh, announced the life extension and probable refurbishment of Pickering. Again, we were about to lose 3,000 megawatts of carbon-free electricity at Pickering, and this SMR only adds 300 megawatts. So that would have been one step forward for 10 steps back. I think SMRs have important applications, particularly in our smaller provinces, and there's, there's interest from international buyers. Um, but I am a little bit, you know, my preoccupation is not, oh, this is untested technology. That's absolutely not true. It is untested economics. We know economies of scale work. There's some ideas that, you know, because these are smaller, we may be able to build more parts of them in a factory, and that may lead to an accelerated construction schedules and easier financing. Um, that is the untested part. But I think the key lesson here that we have to draw is that Canada is a tier one nuclear nation. We've done an amazing job with our nuclear fleet. Our refurbishments of our candy reactors are going uh, under budget and ahead of schedule, um, and that we are very well equipped from running those refurbishments, Canada's largest infrastructure project, to deploy more new large CANDU, which we need. You know, we need to double or triple our grid. That's going to take a lot of new nuclear reactors in order to accomplish that. One of the things that I was thinking would be um, a potential application for a small modular reactor would be in remote areas where other forms of power generation may not be immediately available or getting the power there would require a lot of infrastructure to be built in order to take, say, uh, hydroelectricity and put it to the far north. Yeah, I mean, this is not a hypothetical situation. None of it spent $250 million. That's a quarter billion dollars on diesel fuel and heating oil uh, several years ago. I don't have the exact facts for this year. Prices have gone up. Fossil fuels, if you haven't noticed, have gotten a lot more expensive. So the North is critically dependent on fossil fuels. And really those communities, you know, these used to be subsistence, hunter-gatherer, uh, mobile communities. These larger permanent settlements um, do not work without a energy-dense form of reliable energy. And so there is the possibility of replacing that very expensive fossil fuel infrastructure with nuclear in some of those communities. Obviously, that's going to be completely contingent upon local acceptance, and that's an uphill battle. There's many reasons why Inuit and Indigenous people might be skeptical of large industrial projects coming to their communities. Um, but again, there's, there's a plan to cut subsidies for all fossil fuels, right? And that is going to be felt the most dearest and nearest in the far north. Where again, towns like Iqaluit are completely dependent on heating oil and diesel for both their heating and electricity needs. So they need a low carbon substitute, but something that is ultra reliable. 
because you know these are i don't need to say it's almost like living on the moon these are extreme weather environments even without climate change um, and people will die without reliable energy so you know there's there's a lot of work to be done we are pursuing micro modular reactors there's a design that's five megawatts that will be coming online in chalk river in 2026 i think that has great applications for the far north but in terms of our race to deep decarbonization you know, it's not the responsible responsibility for Inuit and Indigenous people who've contributed almost nothing to climate change to bear that responsibility. We in the South, in these large economies that use massive amounts of power, are where this needs to start. And we're going to need large nuclear in order to to do that, to shift away from, from further gas burning and electrify everything in our society. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML in Hamilton and 980 CFPL in London. I'm Shona Thompson sitting in for Bill. We're speaking with Dr. Chris Kiefer of Canadians for Nuclear Energy about grid scale modular reactors, small modular reactors, uh, one of which is going to be coming online near the Darlington Nuclear Generating Station. Uh, They have just provided the funding for it to be built as, I guess, a bit of an experiment to see uh, how it's going to go. Um, They're starting with one. Plans are for at least four in that location. One of the other things I was thinking of, Chris, um, back in 2003 when there was that big blackout, uh, I was living in Grimsby in Niagara region, and Grimsby did not lose power during that blackout because that municipality had its own hydro utility. And I'm wondering if there is a potential here for a grid-scale small modular reactor, which I think would power, what, about 300,000 homes? Is that correct? Listen, I mean, grid resiliency is absolutely vital and something that we've learned to completely take for granted. You have to look no further than places like California, which have, again, invested heavily in wind and solar as their energy transition choice and have ended up with very high electricity prices, but more importantly, an unstable electrical grid. California is going to be banning new internal combustion engine vehicles in 2035. Four days after they made that announcement, they said, hey, everyone with a battery electric vehicle, please don't charge your car this weekend because the grid is under extreme stress. So with this move towards electrification, towards electrify everything, we need ultra reliable sources of electricity and we need to avoid blackouts, particularly if we don't have a fossil fuel backup infrastructure. You know, my son spent five weeks in an incubator. He was born seven weeks prematurely. We take it for granted that the power will always be on there. But I mean, this is a matter that is personal for me as a father and as a physician who works in a institution, a hospital that has critical, reliable power needs. And so as we move towards, you know, an energy transition, which is vital for combating climate change, we need to make sure that we do it in an intelligent and smart way. And again, it is excellent, excellent news to see the federal government, which has had very contradictory policies towards nuclear energy, on the one hand, lumping it alongside tobacco, smoking, gambling, and firearms in its green bond framework, um, and on the other, making it eligible for this funding. That happened just in April of this year, and partially as a a response to some of the advocacy that my organization did in Ottawa. Um, And now, again, I'm I'm so grateful and so happy to see that the Canada Infrastructure Bank is making this $1 billion investment. $1 billion may sound like a lot to your listeners, But I want to remind them that every year, Ontario is spending $3.1 billion a year to pay subsidies for the wind and solar contracts under the Green Energy Act. That that program is going to cost us $60 billion over the 30-year lifespan of those assets. And they do have a 30-year lifespan. Unlike a nuclear plant, the the lifespan of a wind farm is 20 years. Uh, A solar farm may get 30 years, but then they're done. 
Whereas our Candu fleet is going 60 to 80 years, and this small modular reactor has an 80-year lifespan. So we need to be smart as we face, you know, challenging economic times, as we face inflation. Um, we have to make the right technological choices that will deliver us both evidence-based deep decarbonization, um, as well as uh, the economic stimulus that we need and the reliable electricity that we all depend upon. Uh, one of the downsides that I read about was uh, how much nuclear waste these smaller plants can produce. So nuclear waste is a, a very misunderstood phenomenon by the lay public. Um, the way it's discussed, you'd think it's just everywhere and it's hurting people, right? The total volume of nuclear waste that Canada has produced over the 60 years of its nuclear program with more than 20 operational large reactors would fit in one hockey rink stacked one telephone pole high. Like, that's remarkable. How is that? Well, it's because uranium as a fuel is a million times more energy dense than coal. So, for instance, the Bruce Nuclear Power Station, which is the world's largest operating nuclear station, goes through a volume of uranium that's similar to one barrel of oil every day. So I've visited some of this, the facilities where these, where these uh, fuel elements are stored. It's benign. It's like an immaculately kept Costco warehouse with um, steel and concrete uh, containers that, that contain the fuel from decades and decades and decades of power generation. So first off, you know, we produce very little. You know, coming out of the reactor, nuclear waste is incredibly dangerous, unshielded. But paradoxically, in modern society, we make dangerous things safe. Just think about flying in an airplane. How crazy is it to fly across the Atlantic 900 kilometers an hour at 30,000 feet in an airplane that needs meticulous maintenance of 10,000 mission-critical moving parts? And we have 4.5 billion passenger flights a year, and there's only about 200 deaths from aviation every year. Well, in the entire history of civilian nuclear waste, there's not been a single death associated with storing nuclear waste. So tiny volumes, a perfect track record, and we do have excellent long-term solutions like de deep geologic uh, disposal or recycling in new generation nuclear reactors. Uh, one of the things, and, and frankly, it struck me a bit as fear-mongering, uh, but one of the things that I read uh, was from the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, they were saying that some types of the waste could be exploited. So, I mean, this is a, a commonly leveraged fear around nuclear energy. Um, the reality is, you know, I think when they say exploited, they're talking probably about, you know, terrorism or diversion towards making nuclear weapons. I mean, this is this is a common fear that's brought up the conflation of nuclear weapons with nuclear energy. The reality is, is that the nuclear waste is incredibly carefully monitored. There's cameras from Austria monitoring it at all times. These are in high uh, security facilities. You know, I work in healthcare. Um, most of the infractions that the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission goes after are healthcare related. Because listen, we manage a lot of radioactive elements, both in sterilization of medical instruments, um, as well as in cancer therapeutics. So, you know, if a terrorist is going wanting to go after something, I'm not going to tell them where to go instead of a nuclear plant, but you can sort of infer there. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of sort of fear, uncertainty and doubt that is weaponized against nuclear energy. Unfortunately, that's coming from environmentalists who really should know better. Because again, nuclear has an incredible track record, especially right here in Ontario. We had North America's greatest greenhouse gas reduction powered by nuclear energy. 90% of the power we needed to get rid of coal, which used to be 25% of our grid, came from nuclear. You know, we went from 54 smog days a year in Toronto, we used to be called the big smoke, to zero because of nuclear energy. The, the Ontario Medical Association estimates 600 lives a year were saved as a result of shutting down coal in Ontario. 
So, I mean, I think I think there needs to be a real reevaluation. I think there's no greater misperception and gap between experts and and general public of any field really other than nuclear energy. And so, I mean, that's why I'm a passionate communicator on this topic. I'm a full-time emergency physician. My only income comes from OHIP. Um, so I just want to you know, make that abundantly clear because it might be strange to be listening to a doctor passionately advocating for nuclear energy. Well, we only have so many options in order to hit some of the green targets that uh, have been set out that we need to hit in, in order to reduce the impacts of climate change. And I think people in Nova Scotia are certainly experiencing what that is like if we don't move on this. No, absolutely. And we do have a number of options ahead of us. Um, and we need to be very vigorous in, 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 al- in analyzing the evidence, again, of what has worked and what has not. The federal government has held up the supposed Canada-German hydrogen alliance as an example of how we're going to both assist our allies and do so in a low-carbon fashion. But, you know, I've looked very carefully at this and analyzed this with experts. It involves building a wind fleet the size of every wind turbine already existing in Canada, hooking them up to electrolyzers, making hydrogen, turning it into ammonia, shipping it across the ocean, and burning it in coal plants in Germany. I mean, if it took me a while to explain that process to you, and that seems complicated, it's because it is. And it's not energy efficient. You waste about 90% of the energy turning a Canadian electron from a wind turbine into an electron on the German grid. So there's a lot of energy illiteracy amongst our political class, and it's leading to some very poor decisions. So again, I'm very grateful that a decisive action was taken by the federal government, which has been entertaining fantasies like a Canada-German hydrogen alliance. They've taken a concrete step, they've followed the evidence, and they're doing something that's very sensible. You know, again, $1 billion seems like a lot of money. We will have spent $60 billion on a wind and solar strategy in Ontario, which has borne very little um, in terms of its contribution to decarbonization in Ontario. Um, so I think we're moving towards energy reality and into making some sensible choices, um, which will be a benefit to our clean air, to our climate, and, and to our economy. Chris, it's always interesting speaking with you. Shona, thanks for having me. Dr. Chris Kiefer is with the Canadians for Nuclear Energy. We've been talking about uh, the small modular reactor. About a billion dollars has been set aside by the Canadian Infrastructure Bank provided for its creation. Uh, It is set to start producing energy in 2028, and uh, they are hoping to have another three join it very soon. We'll see what happens uh, as this plays out. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.